Well, it's good to have you here on a sunny but cold day. And if you are a visitor and you're tuning in online, I want you to know that this is not normal for St. John's. It is not supposed to be this cold, but we will rejoice and be glad in it. I want to speak to you for a few minutes this morning. If you're a visitor or a guest, for those tuned in online, I've been preaching through what is called the Gospel of John. It's the fourth book of the New Testament. If you're new to your Bible, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I've titled the series, and believe it or not, some of you are going to laugh, especially those of you of the church. We are at John 17. This will be my third introduction sermon, and believe it or not, this is sermon number 90. So yes, I am able to milk all I can out of God's Word. But I hope to, next time I preach, start actually getting into this passage, and we're going to actually take it one verse at a time, and I pray by the end of the morning you'll know why. But the reason I do this is because the Gospel of John, for me, is one of the greatest examples of what I titled my series called Conversations with Christ. Because honestly, the whole book is a series of conversations of Jesus with either men or women or groups of people or even crowds. And this is no different. This prayer is not prayed by Jesus alone. This prayer is prayed in the company of his 11 disciples. I have taken now three times to introduce this passage, and I wanted to do that deliberately. The first time I preached, I wanted to set this up, that this is the greatest prayer ever prayed. Then two weeks ago, I talked about the fact that this chapter, John 17, contains the greatest prayer requests ever prayed. And today, my focus is this, that John 17 is the greatest missional prayer ever prayed. It's the greatest missional prayer. But before I even get into all this, I'm going to ask us to get a little bit awkward and a little bit honest. Because so often we do church and we go through the motions, we kind of come in, we report in, we report out, there's a series of events, and it's very easy just to turn off and coast through a service. But let me ask you, from the youngest to the oldest, as men and women, all of you here, whether you're here present in the room or online, I want you to take a quiet moment, and I want you to be honest about how much, how often, and how consistently do you and I actually read the Bible, God's Word. And I mean it now, be honest. I want you to think about this as Christians. If you're here this morning and you would claim, I'm a Christian We claim that this book, the book that Dan just read for us, John 17, we claim that this, this is God's Word. Amen? Again, Mark Jones says, in this life, we will never fully appreciate the privilege of God speaking to us in Scripture. And I want to make a point, because yet, in spite of that, that you all, many of you said amen, what do you think is happening When we think about God talking to us as human beings, when the God of the universe, the one who said, let there be light, and there was light, begins to speak and express himself to us, human beings. As I was studying and prepping for this sermon, I came across this observation. In several places places in his institutes of the Christian religion, John Calvin, considered one of the great reformers and theologians, speaks of the Bible, God's revelation of himself to us in the Bible, are you ready for this, as baby talk. 
We have little Michael here this morning. I know that our newest grandson, Callum, is here, and he's little. Have you ever noticed what happens when you walk up to babies? You don't ever walk up to a baby. I did not walk up to Michael and went, hello, Michael, I am Pastor Steve. Welcome to your first church service. Right? You know what I did? Hello, hello, Michael, 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 Michael. And I, I tickled his chin, and I wanted him to smile, and all of that kind of, right? It's baby talk, right? We, we try to use very simple words, very simple expressions. And John Calvin says, when you and I read the Bible, God is using baby talk. The kind of speech used by a loving mother communicating with an infant child. Now, what does Calvin mean by this? What he actually means is not that Jesus or God is patronizing, not that he's making fun of us. He's basically saying this, any communication to us by God must be in the simplest and most rudimentary language from God's point of view. After all, if God is as big and powerful as we as Christians claim him to be, if he knows absolutely everything and he never is learning, he is the giver of life and the knower of all things, is it any wonder that the prophets told us his thoughts are not our thoughts in Isaiah and his ways are not our ways? John Calvin goes on to say, consequently, God must condescend to speak to us in baby talk if we are to understand him. So church, both gathered and online, if the Bible is to be of any use to us, then it must be a rudimentary revelation. So, let me ask you again, how often... How consistently, how much do you read God's Word? And when and if we do read God's Word and we think along these lines, is it not natural of us to speculate on what the true and deep communication that exists between the members of the Godhead must be? Because John 17 is not just God speaking to us. John 17 is God the Son praying and speaking to God the Father. You and I get a front row seat of the Trinity speaking to, in other words. In other words, how profound, deep, and unfathomable must be the talk between Father and Son and being both of them and the Holy Spirit. So now, again, be honest. When was the last time, or have you even ever thought about this? This is a recurring thing I'm going to come to. Herein lies some of our issues as we speak, seek to deal with the life that every one of you is living here in February the 26th of 2023. I mean, again, be honest with yourself, not with me. Be honest with yourself. Are we right in this speculation? Should we speculate about these things? Because maybe, just maybe, this is why we're struggling. I have the glorious privilege of knowing most of you. I got to meet a lot of you this morning, even those that I've met for the first time. But one of the benefits and one of the liabilities of being a pastor is I get to speak through various means of communication, whether it's visits or coffees or counseling or text messages or emails or any one of these things. And all kinds of people have all kinds of questions about their lives. Why am I here? What is my purpose? Where am I going? What does it all mean? We have all kinds of prayers for our lives, don't we? 
And we pray for the people in our lives. And none of you is any different than everybody that makes up the quarter of a million people in this surrounding area. We wonder about things like politics and about culture. We wrestle as the world wrestles with right and wrong about feelings and emotions and relationships and money. Here we are, and we live in an uncertain world filled with uncertainty. And we are not immune of it right here. We are blessed to have our brothers and our sister from the Ukraine. But the reason they're here is because there are wars and rumors of wars in an uncertain world. We have a dear sister back here from Afghanistan who is new to our country, who found Christ in a refugee camp in Abu Dhabi. Why? Because we live in an uncertain world. And yet Psalm 1, all by itself, seems to say this, right? Blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his or her delight is in the law of the Lord. That means they delight in the law of the Lord, in the Bible, and they meditate in that law day and night. But do we? It's amazing to me. We love Proverbs 3, 3 and, or 5 and 6. I was having lunch with someone this week, and they actually said to me, Pastor, you need to know my life verse is Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, which you guys know, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. So I'm having lunch today with this, or this week with someone who says, that's my life verse, and then proceeded to give an hour of questions about how to live life. This is the struggle that we have. How? How are we going to enjoy the blessings of Psalm 1 and be like a tree planted by the rivers of water? How are we going to have the security and commitment of Proverbs 3 to know what to do when life throws us curveball after curveball after curveball, when we live with billions of people and yet feel immensely alone? If we don't, actually read God's word and meditate on it. And Calvary Baptist and all of you that have gathered today, this is why I am so desperate and I am being so deliberate. This is why I want us to slow down. Our world is so fast I want us to focus on God's Word. It's one of the reasons why we have chosen to highlight one book of the Bible per month and simply beg of you and ask of you, take the time to read just that book. Spend time with it. It's why I'm preaching three introductions to this chapter. Friends, John 17, this section of the Gospel of John, is an immediate and an abrupt check on any of our thoughts because it's the purest and it's the most extensive example in all the Bible of a direct, verbalized communication between two members of the Godhead. This prayer, this prayer contains the simplest sentences. Did you listen as Dan read them? It's, it's so simple, it's almost embarrassing. Yet the ideas and the principles are profound and life-changing. It is proof 
that the difficulty we have in understanding God's word is not in the complexity of the truth itself. It's not in the language with which it's conveyed, but it is in, are you ready for this? And I love you and I love myself for this because it's in our own ignorance, our sin, and our spiritual laziness. We don't have to be like this. Grant Osborne helps us and he says, this prayer is the greatest missional prayer ever prayed. These 26 verses, this prayer functions as the conclusion of the farewell discord that began back in chapter 13. So 13, 14, 15, and 16. And in it, Jesus will pray for the gospel as a whole and it sums up many of its themes Did you realize it? It's the theme of glory. It's the theme of the mission from the Father. It's the theme of death and departure, of discipleship and the future church. It is most famously called the high priestly prayer. And there's probably an apt name for it, considering that the glory of the Father and worship and prayer for the people of God are all wrapped up in it. But as we've been learning from the beginning, John 17 is probably more correctly titled the prayer of consecration. Now that sounds like a big fancy word, but all that means is that we set ourselves apart, that Jesus actually prays that he would be set apart, that his 11 disciples would be set apart, that you and I here who would claim to be sons and daughters of God, that we would be set apart to the glory of God. John 17, as it's been read to us again today, this is the third time, is both the longest prayer of Jesus in the Gospels, and yet it's the deepest theologically. But at the same time, it's more than just a prayer. John 17 is actually the final teaching of Jesus in this world. So it is Christological and it's ecclesiological, all right? And those are just fancy words that mean Jesus' prayer tells us about himself, that's Christological, and it tells us about his church. And here is the missional part. Christ's prayer becomes the final preparation of the disciples, so that they'll both be ready and that they'll understand the significance of what is about to happen in the next 12 to 16 hours with the betrayal and the persecution and the death and the burial and the resurrection that is about to unfold. And if you want proof, look back no further to John chapter 2. Take your Bibles, if you would, and go back to John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, it is amazing to me what stands out here. As we've been finishing reading through the gospel... When you come to that famous passage at the end of not the wedding and the turning water into wine, but when Jesus cleanses the temple, I was reading it this week and it really struck me because it is so bizarre that Jesus can walk into this temple, make a whip of cords, drive them all out, and he says, and he told those who sold the pigeons in verse 16, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And remember, look at the next verse, verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written. So you have here, they remembered. Now watch this again. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us? And this is what fascinated me when I was reading this. How does a guy who claims to be God in the flesh walk into this temple and clear it out and all anybody does is say, show us a sign. Show us a sign. 
And the disciples remembered that had been said about the zeal of your house, which is a quotation from the Old Testament. Then the Jews said to him, because he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up in verse 19. And the Jews laugh at him and said it took 46 years. But watch this. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Calvary is a family. I want you to realize this is why we need to take our time with this passage. This is why we need to see this. Because when you and I take our time and we read God's word and we meditate on God's word and we apply God's word, Christ promises. He promises right here in this prayer that he will impart the words of life. You will understand not only his teachings and his signs, his person, his death, and all these things, but then this prayer is offered in a sense, a report card of his fulfillment. And when you and I read this, then you can make sense of your life and your marriage. You can make sense of your career path, relationships, You can have something to deal with your struggles with depression or anxiety or anger or bitterness or why God? I lost everything. As I said this morning, as I was studying, I put this on my Facebook page. We wrestle between two extremes in our humanity. I'm good enough or I'll never be good enough. And John 17 is the answer to both. Because if you think you're good enough, Jesus in love says, no, you're not. You need a Savior. And that's an act of love. And if you feel like you'll never be good enough, God says, yeah, that's true, but I'll make you good enough. And you need a Savior. And this is the beauty of this. So for today, for just a couple of minutes, I want us to consider how Jesus prayed the greatest prayer with the greatest prayer request, and it's the greatest missional prayer. Because number one, if you're taking notes, number one, Christ prays that salvation will come and that he will do it. That's in verses 1 to 5. Christ prays. He wants the gospel to come and that he will do it. This prayer of John 17 shows us the priorities of Jesus' heart. Have you noticed it? Look at it in the first five verses. First, he prays that the world would acclaim him, would not acclaim him, but that God would approve and glorify him. Glorify your son as I have glorified you, he says in verse 2. Secondly, He prays that the events to come would glorify the Father. In other words, Jesus is no showman. He's not a show-off. And I realize we have men and women here of all ages, from multiple different countries of the world. But one of the greatest leavens that have come into the church of the living God is this idea of what's called the prosperity gospel and celebrity pastors. This idea that we build churches around the personalities of people. Jesus was no show-off. He prays that the events to come would glorify the Father. And then watch, thirdly, he devotes most of his prayer to petitions for the salvation and blessing of his people. I want you to catch this, all right? The crisis of Jesus' cross reveals his dying passion, not only for the Father's glory, but for the salvation of the elect who belong to him. All that you have given me are mine. (laughs) You've heard me say, one of my favorite parts, I am a simpleton. We have four elders in this church. When I travel, I always tell people, 
when I travel that the dumbest fella in the church does most of the preaching because I am humbled by the educational power of the elders that I work with. And so as a simpleton, I am fascinated and I put spiritual principles together in very simple ways. So one of the ways for me is uh, the movie uh, Finding Nemo. It's where I get great spiritual insights about the gospel. All right? And right here, Jesus says, all that you have given me are mine. And every time I read it, I see those seagulls in Finding Nemo, right? Mine, mine. And it, it, is, it is like a warm blanket for me so many times when I think of God the Father. As I live my weak little life, and I struggle with my insecurities and my inconsistencies and my hypocrisies to hear God the Father say to Satan and to the world and to the culture, Steve Ray is mine. He's mine. And he says it over and over again and will say it for eternity. See, Jesus prays that salvation will come. And if we learn nothing else from these opening words of Jesus, we should notice at least this. Look at it. In his mind, the chief end of his saving work, and therefore the primary goal of our salvation, is the glory of God the Father. You realize, when God saves a human being, it is not from a sense of pity. It is from a sense of, it brings me glory, and it shows my majesty to save humanity. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. When he answers the question, what if by the grace of God he chose to display his glory by saving people like you and me? And I want you to realize this prayer is so unique because of the person who offers the prayer. You see, this isn't me praying for you. This isn't a priest or a bishop or a cardinal. This isn't a, 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 an archbishop. This is nobody. This is the Son of God. And because of the setting of the prayer, just hours before he would die, he prays that the purposes of God will be perfectly fulfilled through his work. And I've said along with many others, this is actually the prayer of consecration. For by this prayer, Jesus, in the presence of his disciples, consecrates himself. And do you know what he consecrates himself to? To death. To death. As the one and only, as the only effective sacrifice on which their sanctification and ours was to depend. He solemnly in prayer dedicates himself and them and us to the mission which was to be effective and have an effective result by his death and his resurrection. Now, I want to say something, and I really want you to consider not only are they true, but what's the fallout if they are? Calvary Baptist, listen to me. The keys of heaven are in Christ's hands. Amen? And the salvation of every soul of mankind is at God's disposal. Ha <laughs> ha. few less amens then. Uh, thank you, Matt. You see, according to Christ's prayer in John 17, it is eternal life to know the only true God and Jesus Christ who he sent. Now listen to me very carefully. The mere knowledge of God is not sufficient. That's why it haunts me, that old southern spiritual that says, a lot of people singing about heaven ain't going there. It's not sufficient just to know about God. That saves no one. 
We must know Jesus Christ as well as the Father. God known without Christ is someone we can only fear and dare not approach. Ta-da! Is that not most of religion today? A God that we fear. Why do you think DC Comics and Marvel Comics are so popular? In the last decade, there was a movie called uh, The Clash of the Titans. And it was all about um, oh, help me out here, guys, those of you that are the Marvel comic nerds. Who, who's the, the half-god, half-man dude? Who what? Yell it out. No, not Thor. The dude, he's the son of Zeus. Hercules, that's the name I'm looking for. All right? Now, those of you that admitted that, come and confess your sin to me later. Um, <laughs> but in that movie, you actually see, I believe, humanity's view of what they try to articulate as all-powerful godness. Zeus and the gods are aloof and absent, looking only to control. They're whimsical and moody, and it's up to mankind to stand up for itself. And all you're left with is conflict, a tug of war between those who claim to be God and those who want to be God. And that happens in our churches. It is God in Christ reconciling the world unto himself who alone can give to the soul life and peace. Look at verses 3 and 4. And this is eternal life, that they may live forever. No. That they may go to heaven. No. And this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God. It's interesting to me that Jesus prayed this the night before he is crucified. The cross hasn't even happened yet. Yet Jesus spoke of his mission as accomplished. It's already done. Father, it's all over. I have come to the end of the road. I am not going to quit now between now and Golgotha. I'll go to that cross and I will finish the mission. And you'll notice just how missional Jesus is, but wait, there's more, because number two, Christ prays that the disciples, the 11, will proclaim his gospel and be used to establish it. And that's in verses 6 to 19, one of the largest sections of the chapter. And it's closely connected with sanctification. Look at verse 18, as you sent me into the world... So I have sent them into the world. Now, this is where I get fascinated, and I love to slow down and read my Bible. Are you ready for this? Sixteen times this word sent is used of Christ as being sent by the Father. And it usually meant an appointment to some task plus the equipment for doing it. Jesus says, as you have sent me, I have sent them. If we can find out that if Jesus was sent by the Father, he was sent to accomplish a task, he was given the power and the equipment and the ability to accomplish the, the task, then how can you and I doubt as men and women that if Jesus sends us to a task, that he will not equip us and empower us and give us the tools to accomplish said task? One commentator wrote, eternal life is a commission to the fulfillment of God's work. Now let me say that again. Eternal life is not, when I die, you'll have a funeral, 
And you'll say things like, well, heaven got another angel today. It is my pet peeve. For two reasons. One, it's not true. Psalm 8, read it if you get time. Human beings are not angels. Two, we are made better than the angels. When you say someone, heaven has gained a name, you're actually decreasing their value. No, when a man or a woman has owned their sin and admitted, I don't know how to get through this life, and I need a Savior who is Christ the Lord, then according to Psalm 116, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Not because heaven got an angel, no, but because a sinner met a Savior who became a saint and has now been transformed into the presence of Almighty God who can now say, Father, I'm here. And now you can hear Him say, well done, son and daughter. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Spend time for eternity communing with me with no more doubts, no more questions, no more obstacles. That is eternal life. Praise God, there's a handful of Pentecostals here. (laughs) Eternal life for men and women, for these disciples, is not and was not luxurious idleness and laziness. It was purposeful labor in which they realized the best destiny that God the Father offers them. But think about us again. Who are the 11? John MacArthur wrote a book that I have read multiple times. They were just 11 ordinary men. Right now, put yourself there. In fact, as men here this morning, I encourage you to find which of these disciples do you most relate to? (laughs) Me and Peter get along pretty well. But to my sisters and to the ladies, I want you to think about these daughters of God that walked this time with Jesus as well. Mary and Martha, those sisters, one who was always cooking and cleaning and envious of her sister who seemed to just chill at the feet of Jesus, and yet when they lost their brother, they both doubted the love of Christ. What about Jesus' mother? who in John chapter 2 wanted him to turn water into wine, and he said, woman, what have I got to do with this? What about Mary Magdalene or the woman at the well? You know why I love John's gospel so much? Why I'm so obsessed with this chapter is because Jesus prays this type of missional commission, and yet these men and these women that I, am, that I have mentioned are regular, weak, life-living people. Some of you might seem, some of, to some of you, it might seem it's, it's, it's some of us are, are, well, sorry. Some of you, it might seem like what we're going to go see tonight. Some of us are going to go tonight to see this movie that's out. It's a biopic about Chuck Smith and Greg Lowry and, and uh, um, the fellow that, Ch- um, Charles, the prison guy. Huh? Colson, that's it. But Todd Duggar, a pastor of mine in Barrie, Ontario, he wrote this to me uh, today, and he said, the movie Jesus Revolution has a stinging message for local churches that are dying, complacent, and comfortable, and for the members and leaders of those churches who are more interested in protecting what they have than they are committed to the gospel mission to tell the world about Jesus. 
So he writes this, Christian, don't go to this movie to be entertained or better informed about the history of Calvary Chapel. Go to be crushed and convicted and commissioned by the Spirit of God. This revival at Asbury uh, University and other things, I have seen more, more critics of this than people who would pray for its genuineness. Elitism has no place in God's kingdom. David was a gardener, Ruth a field laborer, Nehemiah a cupbearer, David a shepherd, Joseph a carpenter, Mary a mother, Peter a fisherman, Paul a tent maker, and God uses ordinary people to advance his kingdom. Amen? And so Tim Keller reminds us the gospel constitutes not just the ABCs of the Christian life, but the A to Z of the Christian life. It does not just bring you into a relationship with Christ. It transforms you, watch this, slowly but surely into Christ-likeness. So Christ prays that he will institute the gospel. He prays that his disciples will establish the gospel. Now watch this in verses 20 to 26. Christ prays that we, the church, will live out the gospel and complete it. That's what he prays. Now, if you notice, when Dan read this, because it's a bit of a tongue twister, and I was very impressed with how well he did. There's lots of talk in verses 20 to 26 about unity and how unity would empower us to share the gospel and that unity authenticates that Jesus is real and he's from God and that folks need and must listen and receive him and trust him. But the question begs to be asked, what do we mean by unity? You see, some think, those of you that are older and can remember the riots of California, it's like Rodney King when they stuck all those cameras in front of his beaten face and he said, can't we all just get along? And we think that's unity. Others think unity is just agreeing with everyone. You, you, I agree with you, and I agree with you, and you agree with me, and we all know, even though we say it, that that's not even possible. Some people think unity is affirming everyone. You have your view of the truth, and I'll have my view of the church, and as long as I'm not hurting you, and you're not hurting me, then we'll all just live in this human, human utopia, and all I have to say about that is, how's that working out for the world? We're pining after something that can ha never happen. However, of interest in John is how the writer of this gospel, the one who actually has recorded this prayer of Jesus, in John 2, he writes of Jesus as the one who is the author of grace and truth. To the woman at the well, as she argues with him about views and worship and priority of worship, he says, those who worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. And in John chapter 13, 14, and 15, as well as here as he prays in 17, in this farewell address, he will talk to and pray with his disciples about love and truth. Friends, we will not have any kind of unity apart from truth, and truth is Jesus. In Galatians 5, what are the fruit of the Spirit? It's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, meekness, gentleness. Against such there is no law. In 1 Corinthians 13, what is love? 
Love wants what God wants. In 1 Corinthians 3, what did Paul say? I have learned not to know anything among you, what? Save Jesus Christ and him crucified. In 1 Corinthians 15, when the Corinthians were doubting the resurrection of Jesus and they wanted to know what was truth, he simplified it as this, that Jesus came in the flesh, he lived and he died and he rose again and he lives now forevermore. This is the gospel. You don't have eternal life apart from Christ. Dustin Benji says, believers don't love the world by becoming like the world. Believers love the world by showing them Christ has overcome the world. And so, as I close, I want you to know that Christ declares that this salvation will be done. And we'll be with him and God for eternity. What I love about this prayer is that God in his graciousness, we get to see not only how to pray, but the power of prayer, and we're actually told this prayer is going to be answered. This prayer is going to be answered. Read Revelation. It's the answer to the book. They've all been answered. They are still being answered, and they will be fully answered. This is the greatest prayer ever prayed. This is the greatest set of prayer requests ever made. This is the greatest missional prayer ever made. But guess what? Jesus is still praying these prayers. He is at the right hand of God the Father, seated, having intimate intercession for you and I. And if you are in Christ, remember that you are promised grace for every trial, escape from every temptation, contentment in every one of your circumstances, strength for every step. So take your steps in faith. What Christ asked for his people, we should ask for ourselves. That's why Charles Spurgeon said that the sovereignty of God is the pillow on which the child of God rests his or her head at night. And like I said two weeks ago, and I'll say it again, there are at least two groups of people in this room right now. Some of you are here and you are considering the faith. You are curious. Something brought you to church. You are checking it out. You're trying to find, there's some little void, some voice of curiosity. Something is driving you. But there are others here this morning. And you're considering leaving the faith. You're fed up. You're done. You're tired of pretending. You have a lifetime of church hurt and people failures. But tragically, there's another group. It's a group that's far too large and very blinding. It's those of us that are here and we're simply using our definition of faith to claim we're Christians all the while afraid and uneasy that we're not. See, the other 11 disciples didn't completely reject the faith and stop believing Jesus just because Judas did. And if the actions of others wreck your faith, then you have to be at least honest enough to ask, was my hope in Jesus or in people? We all hear voices, every one of us, no exception. Train and tune your heart, Scotty Smith says, to hear Jesus' voice above every other voice. And why is this chapter so so important for us? Because I end with this. You are going to face 10,000 different voices and worries as you leave here today and go out into this cold Sunday afternoon. But here are just 10 
This week, the world is going to say to you, you're just an accident. You're an accident of eight billion random people in the world. But John 17, this missional prayer says, that's not true. You're not the random chance of your parents' reproductive organs. God determined to create you before the foundation of the world in Ephesians 1.4. You are not an accident. You are a gift from God to glorify God to the people of planet earth. This week, the world is going to say to you, and you'll be tempted to think that your life has no purpose or meaning, but John 17 says, that's not true. This prayer proves that Jesus not only created you specifically, but he created you with a purpose. You are designed particularly from features and personality and temperament and giftings and location and era of time. You're not here, and God forgot about you. You're here because God thinks of you. You'll be tempted this week to think and believe that you're going to miss God's will for your life, that you're living a second-class life. But here Jesus prayed over you and I. In fact, you and I can make our plans, but according to Proverbs 16, it's the Lord who will determine your steps. You are not here by accident. You're not here even by your choice. You're here because the Spirit of God drew you here because He said, I want you to know I exist and I love you. And there will be times that you're going to feel this week that you're going to lose God's grace because you've messed up. And there's too many of you here like this. But Sean 17 says, for those in Christ Jesus, we have the assurance of enduring to the end because he keeps keeps us. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. You cannot lose your salvation because it was never of you in the first place. It is a gift from God and he never revokes his gift. You will struggle this week that your loved one, whoever that might be, might be far beyond God's redemption. You might think you've ruined it in marriage, you've ruined it with your kids, you've ruined it with your job, you've ruined it with money, but I want you to know nobody is beyond God's grace. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And I want you to know, if God is going to save your spouse, your mother, your father, your sister, brother, your aunt, your uncle, your neighbor, your co-worker, your fellow student, your son, your daughter, when Jesus says, I will save them, he will. It's not up to you, it's him. And as much as we watch the news and the work of this world, and you're going to be tempted that the darkness of the world is ultimately going to be be prevailing, but John 17 says one day Jesus is going to end all suffering, sin, death, and darkness because the darkness in the world will never overcome the light of the world. That's John 1.5. And some of you are going to experience setbacks this next seven days. And you're going to be tempted by your suffering or your pain, your chronic illness, or your terminal diagnosis. But read John 17 and hear how the Lord uses suffering to grow our character. He teaches us to depend on Him. Joseph's story, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Your life is never wasted, so give it to Him. And you're going to be tempted this week that the earth is going to drift off its orbit, whether it's a giant meteor that we're hearing more and more about in the world or perish from global warming. And trust me, I'm not making a political statement. I'm just wanting you to know that John 17 is that the fate of the planet is not in the hands of the climate or the weather systems, even the extreme cold weather here in Newfoundland. Nobody should lose sleep about the earth's annihilation because he holds the planet in the palm of his hand. 
And Christians, especially hurting ones, or some who have different ends of life, you're thinking, what am I, or what if I'm going to die before I've ever finished this race? Jesus prayed over this. Friends, you're not going to die one second sooner than the Lord intends. Live a life worthy of your calling. Run your race to win it, and remember that this time is short, so redeem the time because the days are evil. And finally, church, the reason we struggle to read God's Word and the reason we struggle to pray is reasonably this, because too many of us wonder if it make a difference or that our prayers don't matter. And yet again, John 17 says this one thing, He knows everything you need before you ask it. And yet we're still instructed to pray. His sovereign authority over all things ensures there's nothing he can't do. So this week, pray with faith. Confess your sin. Use the prayers of Scripture. Recite God's attributes. Praise God for his blessing. Pray through your prayer list. Focus on the needs of others. And then rejoice that Jesus is right now praying for you. And may God give us a mission this week. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, I feel my own weakness in humanity, the dryness of my throat, the desperation of my heart to wonder, did I preach this well enough? When I look into the faces of these men and women here who I love, and yet you love them as God loves you. Lord, if any man or woman here this morning is hurting or searching, questioning, doubting, angry, bitter, cynical, whatever it might be, oh God, give them courage to be honest with themselves and honest with you. Lord, I pray that you would help us now to hear the still small voice of God even as we sing to allow people to pray with each other. Spirit of the living God, would you show your presence in this place? May we see how Jesus has prayed for us and prays for us. May we see these requests that he prays as our high priests are being heard by you and that these are prayers with mission. So may we leave this place not defeated, but victorious. Lord, not afraid to admit we've sinned, but embracing repentance because we guaranteed forgiveness. Restore unto us the joy of your salvation. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.